Will you please turn to Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2 in your Bibles? And we're going to be looking at a passage in that chapter, so we want everybody to be able to follow along. These brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And you'll be able to follow along as we look at Genesis 2 together. When Kim and I purchased our engagement and wedding rings 31 years ago, the jeweler, a guy named Marshall, was a talkative and somewhat funny fellow. I remember him asking, Hey, do you want to see my two-carat ring? And we said, Sure. And then he showed us a ring with the shape of two carrots on it. We politely chuckled at that and at the numerous other corny things that he would say. At one point, Marshall asked me what I was planning to do for a career, and I said I wanted to train to be a pastor. He got serious for a moment, and he said, you know, everybody needs to have a minister for those times in your life when things aren't going well. I have a rabbi, and I've had to go to him for advice on occasion. And he said, when I need a suit, I go to my tailor. And when I need my car fixed, I go to my mechanic. When I need flowers, I go to my florist. And when I need spiritual advice, I go to my rabbi. Now, the way Marshall viewed ministry struck me, and it's stayed with me these many years later. And it has so because his perspective is that of many, many people. It's a view that sees the spiritual as just one among many areas of life. In this view, life is comprised of many boxes, of several compartments, and one spiritual life is just one of those. And you don't need to worry yourself with it until something is needed or until something goes wrong. Your car breaks down, you go to the repair shop, and you see the mechanic. Your body breaks down, you go see the medical doctor. You need flowers, you know who to see. And if you need spiritual advice, be thankful that you have a spiritual advisor on retainer. Now, most of us don't see it exactly that way, at least most of us here. But many of us, even here, hold to a variation of that. Instead of giving attention to the spiritual dimension only when something goes wrong, like Marshall was advocating, we see the need to cultivate our spiritual lives regularly. And so we don't just see the pastor when something goes wrong, We see them most Sundays, as you're doing today. And so we go to church regularly, or at least semi-regularly. Perhaps even schedule reading of the Bible and prayer during the week. And these are all good and excellent things, of course. But we can do all of that and still see the spiritual as just one among many compartments in our lives. Just one among many boxes labeled with the areas of life with which we all need to concern ourselves. So many of these compartments, these boxes, are things that we all have in common. All of us have a box, a compartment labeled finances. Or a box labeled work and career. We have a family compartment. We have a recreation, vacation compartment. A friends and social life box. And we have a church compartment. Now, what's important about this approach to life is that none of the boxes is clearly priority over the others. 
Now, to be sure, there are times when one area of your life is going to rise to the top of the agenda as circumstances require. But in our day-to-day routine, we don't see any one area as consistently most important. For many people, there is no thing or no one that is over all the boxes and which gives definition and meaning to all the others. And so what that means is if we take that approach to life, the compartmentalized approach to life, it means that by default, what animates all that we do is a purpose that we assign to what we do, that we assign to what we do. What motivates my care for my finances is what goals I've set for myself. What moves me to pursue an education and advance in my career are the objectives that I've created for myself. What I want for my spouse and my children in that family compartment reflects the values that I hold and I want to see them reflect. My recreation and my social network are to help me recharge my batteries so that I have the energy to pursue my agenda for my finances and my career and my family. And church is important because ultimately all of that came from God. So we need to be grateful to him for allowing us to have money and have careers and have families. After all, without God's generosity, I would not have what I have and be able to live as I do. But there is precisely where the compartmentalized view of life goes wrong. You see, friends, God does not give us what we have in order for us to pursue whatever is of value to us. God is not content and never intended to be the sugar daddy for our agenda. Our creator and our redeemer and our Lord desires and demands and deserves to be at the very center of our life's agenda. To put it another way, the overarching pursuit that is to inform and to motivate all the activities of our lives could be summarized in one word. It's worship. We see that when we're reminded uh, that our modern word worship comes from an old English word, worthship. It emphasizes what is of worth, what is of value. And it's God who is of highest worth, of highest value. It is therefore God and his agenda that's to inform and define our lives, our lives in all of their facets. All of the boxes, every one of the compartments, they're all to be pursued for God and to be ordered by God. That is, we do all that we do for God's purpose, and therefore we do it in God's way. And God tells us this at the very beginning, at creation. God set himself up to be the center of mankind's agenda. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates the first man and the first woman. And we're going to see... That God says worship is to be their purpose. And then he provides them the means to carry that purpose out. And by extension, God is telling us our purpose in all things at all times is to be worship. And everything that we pursue are given to us by his hand as a means for us to pursue that ultimate purpose. Let's ask God to help us as we look at Genesis 2. 
Father, thank you again for motivating us to be here in this sacred place, in this sacred time. Set apart from the mundane to focus our attention upon you, to focus our attention upon your word, and how, as always, we need to be aligned to your character revealed therein. Lord, we always, always need your aid. So help us. Help us to see, help us to consider, and help us to readily change for the glory and the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We have each week, as this week, inserted in your program an outline. And if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. Because I want you to see three things with regard to this ultimate priority of worship that God has given to all of us. The first is this. Life is for worship. Life is for worship. Now, when I say life is for worship, I'm saying all of life. All the compartments, all of the boxes... Every piece of it, every moment, every day is for the purpose of worship. And because that's the case, because God has so designed his world so that he is at the center of the world that he created, then a couple of other things are true as well that I say in your outline. The first is humanity is designed for worship. Life is for worship. And because that's true, God has designed us for that worship. Verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, many of us have read that passage many times over the years. That the first man, Adam, was placed in the garden and, as it were, Adam was to be a gardener. So the first thing, the first task that that God gave to mankind was for humanity to garden. And I hate gardening. Now, if you come to my house in the front, there's some nice looking stuff. All of it put there by my wife. And uh, I will do that stuff if I have to. But I detest gardening. I know some of you are great gardeners and some of you are not only great gardeners, you love gardening. And so I guess that makes you more spiritual than me because you're pursuing the design that God had for mankind. But not so fast. Because those words in verse 15 that say to work it and take care of it. I am convinced, and more importantly, people much smarter than me are convinced, that that should actually be translated, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to serve and to obey. In fact, some translations say that very thing, to serve and to obey. Now, I won't bore you with the the Hebrew and why that's the case. But Alan Ross, the eminent scholar Alan Ross, the Hebraist, John Curid, each say that this should be translated that God placed man in the garden for this purpose, to serve and to obey. What's translated to work is to serve. And what's translated to take care is to obey. The Lord God put man in the garden to do those two things, to serve and to obey. And another way to put that is, the Lord God put mankind in the garden to worship. Now, why do I say serving and obeying are worship? Here's why. Because those same Hebrew words are used elsewhere 
in the first five books of your Old Testament, all five of them written by the same person, Moses, who wrote the second chapter of Genesis. And these words are used, and they're used of worship. Exodus chapter 8, for example. The Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And that's the same word that's translated to work or take care. And then again in Genesis, this very book, but in chapter 17, God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep, that is obey my covenant, you and your descendants after me. This is the same word that's translated take care. But here it is keep, rightly, and obey. And then again in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord says, keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right. Again, obey. The same word that's translated in chapter 2 and verse 15 in the NIV as take care. And when both of those words for serving and obeying are used together, they refer to the worship of God. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, serve the Lord your God with all of your heart. That word serve, same word that comes from Genesis 2 and verse 15. Serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and observe the Lord's commands. Same word that's translated chapter 2 verse 15 as take care. So God placed humanity on earth for the purpose of worshiping him. And the God who placed man in the garden for the purpose, made us for the purpose of worshiping him, gave us the capacity to do that very thing. We have seen in previous weeks, just two weeks ago, in chapter 7, earlier in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Among all the other of God's creatures, God breathed into humanity the breath of life. And I pointed out two weeks ago that breath throughout Scripture is often used of the Spirit of God. God breathed into man spiritual life so that he became not only a material being, but an immaterial being as well. Physical and spiritual. And so all humanity has these two components. Material, immaterial, physical, and, and spiritual. And that is because we were made to have the spiritual capacity to transact with God, to interact with God, to worship God. We alone among God's creation. So life is for worship. All of life in all of the boxes and all of the compartments is for the purpose. From the very beginning, of, it is for worship. And so humanity was designed for that very purpose. And in your outline, I say humanity is designed for worship, but also humanity is directed to worship. We're designed, we're given spiritual life in order to worship. We were made spiritual beings to have that capacity. God put us on earth in order to do that, in order to worship him. He's designed us that way, but he's directed us to do it as, as well. Now, those words that are in chapter 2 and verse 15, where it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, and then in the NIV it says for him to to work it and to to take care of it. And I'm saying that is to serve and to to obey. 
Now, you take those two words, to serve and to obey, and that can sound redundant to us, can't it? If I'm serving, of course I'm obeying. Well, that's not necessarily the case, is it? I can serve, I can do the task that you've assigned to me, but I can still do it for my own agenda. And so God says both of those, you are to serve and you are to obey. You know, there's a, an encounter in 2 Samuel chapter 6, later in the first part of your Bible, with a man named Uzzah. Uzzah. And some of you remember that story. That the Israelites were taking the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. And God had given explicit instructions about how this was to be moved from one place to the other. And he had said very clearly, you are not to touch the Ark. And so here is Uzzah as part of the entourage that is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Been explicitly instructed to obey God, do not touch the Ark. And then there is a situation in which it looks like the ark is going to fall, fall to the ground. And so Uzzah's going to help God out. And he reaches out and touches it. And God summarily executes him. He's serving, but not obeying. Adam can, and as we will see, is given work to do. And begins to carry out that work. But then very early on, when we get to chapter 3, we will see that he disobeys God. He served but he's not obeying. And humanity is directed, therefore, to worship God. We're designed to do that, but God commands that we do it, directs that we do it as well. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, God does not give a host of choices here. He gives two choices. Eat everything you want and as much of it as you want. And don't eat of this one tree. That's it. So Adam cannot say, you know, I was confused. You just gave me too many instructions here. Pretty simple, isn't it? And God designed it to be that very way to be simple so that there could be no legitimate excuses. Only one prohibition alongside the bound of provision that mankind is given. It's easy to understand and there's no lack, no lack for Adam that would compel disobedience. He was not deprived of anything. He had everything. But as we're going to see in chapter 3, the temptation to autonomy was too great. Now, what is that autonomy? That word means self-rule. Or self-law. And that's precisely what Adam decided he wanted. Despite the bounty and all that God had provided for him, the one thing he did not have was the throne of God. To make his own rules. And that's why this tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton says this, The knowledge of good and evil is a legal phrase, a way of saying that one can now formulate and articulate a judicial decision. And he gives an example, if you care to jot this down, in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 50. Genesis 24 and verse 50. A decision has been made for a man named Laban, and the Bible says he's now unable to say good or bad. 
And Hamilton points out that it's not that Laban can't talk. He can't say good or bad things. It's not that he can't talk, but rather the decision on what is good and what is right has already been made for him. When God makes humanity, God the Creator is the one who is to decide what is good and what is evil. But now with sin, man becomes, according to chapter 3, And verse 22, after the fall, after man disobeys, the Bible says, mankind has now become like God. And become like God in the sense that he seeks to determine himself now what is good and what is evil. The knowledge of good and evil is in effect, I will make my own rules. And God says, I'm giving you one rule to follow. Don't eat from the tree, the consequence of which is you will from that day forward seek to make your own rules. Can you follow this one rule? And we know the answer. Now in chapter, in verse 16 of chapter 2, we are given the first, the very first commandment in the Bible. The very first commandment, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we sometimes look at Adam and Eve, and we, and I've heard sermons to this effect, that we're just like Adam and Eve, and, you know, they had a choice to do right or not do right, and we're just like them. We've got the choice to do right or not do right. (laughs) We will see when we get to chapter 3 in just a couple of weeks, and sin enters God's good world, and now there is a radical change in the relationship between God and man and in the nature of humanity. There's a radical change in his his nature so that unlike Adam, who could indeed choose good or choose evil, now mankind can only choose evil. Did you know that? After Adam and outside of the redemption and the regeneration that comes through Jesus Christ, outside of that, humanity can only sin. So some have put it this way, helpfully, for me at least. You have these four stages of human history. The very earliest stage of human history, you have Adam and Eve, as we will see in a moment. And mankind has this first stage. He is able to obey and able not to obey. But then after the entrance of sin, here's the next stage. Humanity is not able to obey. So the first stage, you're able to obey, not able to obey. Second stage was sin not able to obey. The third stage, if you come to Christ, if you're regenerated, if you know Jesus is, you are now able to obey and able not to obey. That's where you are. That's where I am. Thanks be to God, there's a fourth stage coming. When I am not able not to obey. When I'm only able to obey. We are in that third of those four stages now. In chapter 2, God gives this command. God's word comes as a command. In chapter 1, God's word came as a a demonstration of his creative power. Now in chapter 2, it comes as a command to be obeyed by the only creatures that have the free moral agency to do that. Humanity. But after they sin, they no longer have that capacity. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
And in Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote of the, the depravity, the sinfulness of humanity. And he said, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It doesn't mean that everything people outside of Christ do is bad. It does mean that they never do even good things for the right reasons. Namely, the worship, the glory of God. And as such then, they sin. Now the fact that God commands us to worship, friends, can seem like it's something then that we have to do. Even if we don't want to do it. But God desires people who worship through their obedience because they want to worship God through that obedience. That's why the Westminster Catechism, a question and answer form of helping learn Christian doctrine. The famous Westminster Catechism says in its very first question, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer given is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, it's to glorify God by fulfilling the purpose to worship him. That is, to serve him and to obey him that we were given at the beginning. That's our chief end, but we're to enjoy that. John Piper has helpfully modified, as great an answer as that is in the catechism, he's modified one of the words, but profoundly so. He says, you know, the answer to that should really be this. The chief end of man is to glorify God, not and enjoy him forever, but by enjoying him forever. You see, we glorify God by the fact that we enjoy doing so. If I simply go through the motions and obey God because I have to, I'm not glorifying God. I worship God. I glorify God. When, yes, I serve Him and obey Him, but I do so willingly and gladly. And friends, God, Almighty God, is the one who places us in the circumstances in which he sovereignly commands us to worship him by obeying. God is the one who sovereignly places us in the circumstances in which he commands us to worship him by obeying. He sovereignly puts us in those circumstances. He put Adam in his circumstance. He has put you in your circumstance. It means your circumstance is no excuse for your disobedience. If God is the one who commands this obedience, and God is the sovereign one who places you in the circumstances in which that obedience is to be played out, then our circumstances can never be an excuse for our disobedience. And yet, isn't that what we do? Hey, you don't know my deal. You don't know all I got going on. You don't know all the pressure on me. Believe me, God knows every piece of it. Because God has designed every piece of it to be the venue, to be the circumstances in which you will carry out this worshipful obedience. Life, all of life, is for worship. Secondly, work is for worship. Work is for worship. God assigned humanity work even before the entrance of sin. We see that if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 28. God blessed them, chapter 1 and verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, when we were back in chapter 1 a few weeks ago, I noted that this is called, rightly, the dominion mandate. It is the mandate, the command that God gave to humanity to, to dominate the earth, to have dominion over it. So it's called the dominion app mandate. And, and mankind was to fulfill this. He was to work to subdue the earth and to, f- to fill the earth and to rule over it. So work is not the curse of sin. As we will see when we get to chapter 3, it's the difficulty of work that is the curse of sin. Mankind was given work to do. And in chapter 2, we find the beginning of that work of ruling for God as his representative, verse 19 of chapter 2. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So here's the first man, and here's the first mention of the particular work that he's going to do now of dominating, of ruling the earth. And that is to name the other creatures. Now the naming of the creatures demonstrates authority over those creatures. And we will see later that the man names the woman, and that's important. Because in God's chain of command, in God's chain of authority, God gives a leadership, a very important leadership role to the man. But here the man is naming the creatures and it shows the authority that God has given him over those creatures. But we're going to see another purpose for that naming, not only to demonstrate the authority, but another purpose in just a bit. So here is Adam. He's made to worship God, to serve God and to obey God. And the carrying out, the means by which that happens, includes the work that God's assigned him to do. So what does that mean for for you? What does that mean for me? That means that what we consider to be the mundane work that we do is a means that God has assigned for us to worship him. And Adam is, in effect, worshiping God by obeying him and serving him. And it highlights two mistakes we often make. We often make the mistake of thinking only religious stuff is worship. Only when you come to church and do churchy things, or when you're at community group and talk in a churchy sort of way, are you worshiping God. But you know, on Wednesday, Thursday, when you're at work, and you're going through the grind of trying to make the sale, and every, then we think that's not worship. So we make the mistake of thinking only the religious stuff is worship or that since worship can and is to be a part of everything that we do, then the religious stuff becomes unnecessary. Both of those are the twin mistakes that we make. Work, all of our work and everything we do, is to be done for the worship of God. And that means a couple of things in your outline. The quality of our work matters. The quality matters. You see this in Scripture that in the New Testament, the second part of your Bible, employees, in this case in the New Testament, slaves who had masters, were that was their employment in effect, they are directed this way in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now what a profound difference it would make if you go to work tomorrow 
and see your work that way. Your boss may be a jerk. In fact, your boss is a jerk because all bosses are jerks, right? Unless, of course, you're the jerk, you're the boss, I mean. And then there's one exception in all the earth, and that's you. But until you rose to the point that you were the supervisor, all bosses were jerks. I've been in the workaday world. I know that's the way we see it. But your boss may indeed be difficult to get along with. But understand that ultimately you are not serving that human boss. Ultimately you are serving the Lord in the quality of what you do. And secondly in your outline. Not only does the quality of our work matter. The duration of that work matters. The duration. Duration may not be the best word. But what I mean by that is our work as worship is to be all the time. At all times. Am I to see the work that God has assigned to me, whether that's as a homemaker, whether that's as a salesperson, whether that's working for an auto company, no matter what that is, that work all the time is to be seen as worship for God. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see that stated. Again, slaves are told, obey them, your masters, not only to win their favor, win their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you are serving the Lord, not people. So all the time, even when the boss is not looking, as it were. And so I'd said the purpose for naming the animals, this work that had been assigned as a means to worship God, which is the ultimate purpose for humanity on earth, this naming the animals was, yes, to begin the pursuit of Adam's assigned work and show his authority over the other creatures, but God had something else in mind too for having Adam name all the animals. Look at verse 18. The Lord pronounced the situation with Adam. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then beginning in verse 19, God parades the animals in front of Adam. So here's God's plan. God says to himself, it's not good for the man to be alone. But he doesn't fix the alone problem right away. He has the animals paraded in front of Adam first. So that Adam sees these animals coming two by two, male and female. And by the time he's done, the declaration is in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, why does God do it that way? Why does God announce to himself the situation with Adam? It's not good for him to be alone, but then he doesn't fix it. He waits to fix it until Adam has seen all of these two-by-two animals come. Why does he do that? This highlights for Adam the goodness of God in supplying what he, Adam, needs. And it makes all the more inexplicable man's disobedience that we're going to see in the next chapter. God is highlighting for Adam, I know what you need. And now you know what you need. And then he supplies it and thereby shows his goodness to Adam. Worship is the theme. And work is a means of carrying it out. And marriage then, God giving a woman to the man, is a means of helping man accomplish, humanity accomplish his and her tasks. So life is for worship. Work is for worship. And thirdly in your outline, marriage is for worship. 
You see, friends, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the beginning of marriage. The first marriage, the institution of marriage. But sometimes we separate the institution of marriage and the giving of the woman to the man from the purpose for which marriage was given. That purpose, like the purpose for all things, is the worship of God. Man was to worship God in his work, and man is to worship God in his home as well. Marriage is for worship. Now, if we would think of marriage that way, think of how it would change our relationships. If you have a spouse, God has given you that spouse for you together to help each other worship God. Now, next week, I'm going to spend the entirety of our time on marriage. Because you all are thinking, he's got a full point still to make. And the appointed hour passed like five minutes ago. So how is he going to make this full point and not have all of us mad at him? And all of us thinking about coffee and bagels. Well, here's how. I'm going to preach on marriage next week. I'm going to finish the outline. But I want you to understand the context today. The context of marriage is worship. And we are to see our marriage is as God's means for worship. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man and the woman now help one another serve and keep his commands. Serve and keep, going back to chapter 2 and verse 15. Serve and keep his commands so that they might continue their lives as his representatives in his world. Now here's what that means. Two things quickly for today. Marriage is for worship, which means we were made for relationship. We, humanity, were all made for relationship. Now, to my single brothers and sisters out there, when you read this passage, you hear this passage taught or preached on, very often what we, the conclusion, I think, I know, a false conclusion we jump to is this. Well, if it's not good that man be alone, then that aloneness is only solved by marriage. That's not the case. It is not good for humanity to be alone. That's God's pronouncement. And in the case of Adam, he solved his alone problem by giving him Eve. But he gave Adam Eve so that they could fill the earth, begin the process of filling the earth. But it is not the case that the only way for the alone problem to be solved is through marriage. So we make the mistake of saying because Adam's aloneness was solved by marriage, if I'm alone, then I've got to get married. Well, Paul didn't get the memo on that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. It is good to stay unmarried, as I do. But Paul still understood that he was made for relationship. That relationship may or may not be a marriage relationship for all of us. But we were all made for relationship. We were all made for one another. 
We were all made to serve God in community. So we need marriage to have more servants, but not everyone needs to be married to serve. We were made for relationship, lastly. We were made for discipleship. Marriage is for the purpose of worshiping God, which means marriage needs to be a discipleship relationship. And how do I know this? Because when Paul expounds on the roles of husbands and wives and children, in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, he says this to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Men and ladies, why do you get married? You get married to enter into a partnership, to worship God together, and to help one another learn of and grow in Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. That's what marriage is to be. Now, I'll talk more about that next week. Now, as you put all this together, then, life is worship. Work is worship. Marriage is worship. All the compartments are to be under the heading of the worship of God. As we look at these and every other activity, we tend to look at these things as the means of our fulfillment. We look at our work and our careers as our fulfillment. We look at our marriage partners, or if you're single, this marriage partner that you're dreaming about as your ultimate fulfillment. We look at these or any other activity as fulfillment, but what God is saying is this, your fulfillment is to be found in me. And I have given numerous means by which you achieve the purpose for which I have placed you here. To serve and obey me. To worship me. So does God want you to be happy? Absolutely. But he wants more than happiness. Happiness is tied to what happens. Happenstance. Your circumstances. God wants more than your happiness. He wants your joy. And your joy is to be constant and abiding, come what may, regardless of the circumstances. Now, friends, the only way that that happens is if you understand that the thing that you were made for, no, the one that you were made for, is your creator who made you to worship him in the circumstances in which he sovereignly places you. If you understand that, then you can take joy in every situation you find yourself in. The great apostle found that, and he said so in Philippians chapter 4. I've learned how to be full and how to be hungry. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, says Paul, Philippians 4.11. And then just two verses later, he makes the same famous statement in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So what's our take-home truth? Everything we do. Everything we do is for worship. Let's bow. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, we come together in this hour and we worship you for this time period. Help us to understand, Lord, that worship, though it includes this religious time, as it were, this sacred time of your people coming together, the redeemed among your humanity, singing praise to you and giving back to you and learning of you. 
Worship includes this important and blessed time. The Lord, help me and help us to understand that worship is all of our lives and every activity in which we engage. And you have placed humanity on earth to bring glory to you by worshiping you in our work and in our marriages, in everything that we do. Help us then, Lord, to sanctify every moment, to set apart every moment and every activity, no matter what it is, understanding that that is to be chosen and that is to be pursued for the worship of our God. May it make a difference this afternoon. May it make a difference this week as we serve you in the places you've assigned to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.